Good morning. Please join me in prayer. May the spirit of all truth open our minds today as we read and study your holy word. May may we be willing to be led into all truth and to be taught what is the will of the Father. Give us willing hearts and the opportunity to share with others the perils of you would teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's scripture reading is John 10, verses 1 through 7, printed in your bulletin, or if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep will follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may live and have it all to full. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rip. It's good to be back. Uh, we were on vacation last week. We, um, we went skiing. Every time we go skiing, at least five or six people are surprised that we've come back without having broken any bones. And um, I didn't think we were that bad as skiers, but uh, we had a great time. We were glad to be uh, refreshed, but it is good to be back with you and worshiping and to sing with you, um, and we're just glad to be here. We're in the third Sunday of Lent this Sunday, and Lent is the season of the church calendar which prepares us for Good Friday and for Easter, and it's traditionally a season, if you know anything about Lent, even just culturally, it's a season when, when Christians give something up. They sacrifice something. So standards, right? I'm, I'm giving up chocolate for Lent, or I'm giving up alcohol for Lent, or I'm giving up eating meat for Lent. Uh, one that I'm hearing more about, this is, I think, a brilliant idea. People will say, I'm giving up social media for Lent. I think that's, that's really 
uh, wise, I think, for a number of reasons. But the practice of sacrifice is not just for sacrifice's sake. So there's, there's nothing that makes you more holy or more righteous just because you gave something up. We sacrifice for a greater reason, namely to make room for something else. So think about uh, cleaning out your garage or cleaning out your basement. You don't clean out your garage or clean out your basement just recreationally, right? I don't. Uh, You clean out your garage or your basement so that all that clutter is no longer taking up the space so that you can park your car in there again and you have space for your car in your garage. In Lent, we're making sacrifices, not just because it's somehow more spiritual or more holy to make a sacrifice, but in order to clear out the spiritual clutter in our lives, to make space to invite Jesus into our life more fully and more deeply. And so even in our sermons this year, we're thinking a little bit about sacrifice, and we're sacrificing, as it were, something more abstract. Namely, we're sacrificing, uh, we're giving up false understandings of Jesus. So I don't know, it's amazing to me how often you, you actually hear a fair bit about Jesus just in, in day-to-day life. And a lot of people have a lot of thoughts and opinions about Jesus. What's really interesting to me is a lot of people have thoughts and opinions about Jesus who it's probably fair to say have not actually met Jesus or who don't know Jesus. But everybody wants to have a thought about Jesus. And those tend to kind of permeate and come through media and pop culture, and they just slowly osmose into us. So during Lent this season, we're, we're shedding those, we're clearing out that clutter, and we're actually making space to let Jesus tell us who he is. We're going to allow Jesus to speak for himself this season, instead of only hearing about him from other people who think they know what they're talking about. In the Gospel of John, in the New Testament, Jesus makes seven uh, very well-known I am statements. And Jesus gives us, it's, it's metaphor, but we're exploring those metaphors. He gives us seven statements of who he is. And so we're just letting Jesus tell us, this is who I am, this is what I'm like. Two weeks ago, we heard Jesus say, I am the true vine, and we explored what that meant. Last week, Pastor Caleb preached, and he preached on Jesus who says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And by the way, if you haven't listened to it or if you weren't here, go to our website and listen to it. It was, man, he knocked it out of the park. He did a really, really great job. So this week, actually this week and next week, we're in John 10. And in John 10, Jesus makes two statements that are connected. This week, we're going to look at Jesus' statement when he says, I am the gate. Or some English translations, he says, I am the door. And then next week, right on the heels of that, he's going to say, I am the good shepherd. They're connected, so we won't be able to say everything, and this week will probably leave a few unanswered questions. But we're going to focus more on the first part. And what we'll see this week, and especially next week, and we actually saw it last week too, is that all of these I am statements that Jesus makes, every time Jesus tells us something about himself, they all have a lot in common. One of the things that they really have in common that jars us and that offends a lot of our modern American sensibilities is that Jesus makes a lot of very exclusive claims. He makes a lot of very exclusive claims. And people will hear, hear this and they'll say, That's, that can't be right. That's so exclusive. To which I say, well, it actually is pretty exclusive. And to, this morning, we're going to examine that through the lens 
of Jesus' statement, I am the gate. Now, I'm going to focus mostly on verses 7 through 10 that Rip read this morning. It's in your program. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. But let me read verses 7 through 10 again for you, just so that we can all get our minds on the same page. Jesus teaches, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. And all who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. You see why people get offended by Jesus sometimes? <laughs> maybe, maybe you have heard, maybe you've had conversations with people who say, I just have a hard time believing in a God who says that he is the only way. It's not a popular statement nowadays. By the way, it wasn't a popular statement in Jesus' day. He got him killed. And the ancient Romans were probably even more polytheistic than we are, so a statement of exclusivity was very difficult for them as well. And yet, even in that context, here's Jesus saying there's one way, there's one gate. There's one way in. It's me. It's not just local to John 10, by the way. In, in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 5, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. He's using the same language, implying that it's him. And we heard Jesus' exclusivity last week when Jesus said, this is the most blunt and and forward of them, when Jesus says, I am the way, not a way, the way, and the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, sometimes people try to do some kind of theological gymnastics and try to get out of it. Ah, Jesus didn't really mean that, and if you, but he, he did. He did. Even if if you read this in the Greek, it's actually even more explicit. And it's hard to translate. It's pretty clunky if you try to translate it directly into English. Uh, But what Jesus does is he repeats the word I as if to emphasize that it's, it's him. It's nobody else. So he's I, I, me, myself, I myself am the gate, Jesus says. And interestingly, all seven of those I am statements, Jesus uses that same very emphatic personal pronoun. I myself and the true vine. I myself in the way. I myself in the gate. I myself in the shepherd, and so on and so on. And that's what rubs people the wrong way. It might rub some of us the wrong way. Of all the religions in the world, of all the people, of all the cultures in the world, how on earth could Jesus say that he is the only one? Isn't that arrogant? Let me just offer this one caveat before we really dig into it. Um, It's helpful to remember this is not Pastor Chris saying Jesus is the way. I mean, it is, but, but Jesus himself is the one saying this. So if, if, if this is difficult, like your beef isn't with me, it's with Jesus. And I would actually urge you the best way to interact more with Jesus and to question Jesus is to open your Bible to the New Testament. Those first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the story of Jesus. And just read them and let Jesus speak for himself. Because the common assumption is, well, isn't it arrogant of Jesus to say that? 
And there's a common illustration that people give to say, well, that can't really be the way. And in fact, the illustration that people give strikes me as, I, I don't think people mean it, but kind of unintentionally arrogant. Maybe you've heard it. So, so when people say, here, oh, Jesus says he's the only one, well, it can't be that way. It's kind of like this, and maybe you've heard this illustration or one like it. Imagine that God is like an elephant. Have you heard this? And we're all like blindfolded people. Everybody's just kind of like a blindfolded person. So if you ask, if you have three different blindfolded people, and you ask each of those three blindfolded people to describe an elephant, you might get three very different answers. One blindfolded person might come up to the elephant and touch it, and they feel the elephant's leg. And they say, wow, this is what's strong, and it's white. It's like, a, it's like a tree trunk. An elephant is like a tree. And then somebody else who's blindfolded uh, reaches up, and they happen to grab hold of the elephant's trunk. And they say, no, it's like, a, it's like a fire hose. It's like a very strong fire hose. And somebody else reaches up, and they grab the elephant's ear. And they say, no, it's like a, like a thick big floppy sheet of leather or you know and and so the argument goes well they're all right like none of them are wrong it's just none of them has the whole picture and to connect the obvious metaphor they say god god is like the elephant we're all just kind of like the blindfolded and we all just sense a different part of god nobody's you're not wrong but there are just other ways you're just emphasizing a different part of god Here's the problem with that, and I don't think people who make that are, I think they're really genuinely seeking after truth, but there's an unintentional hubris in this that we need to be very careful of. Because if you make the argument that God is like the elephant and everybody's just like somebody who's blindfolded, do you know what you're saying about yourself? See, everybody else is blindfolded and only feels part of the elephant. I see the whole thing. I see the whole thing. You're all blind. I can see. I know what it's really like. You just have part of the picture. I see the whole picture. You see the problem with that line of reasoning? It's not very consistent. The very argument that people use to accuse Jesus of being arrogant becomes unintentionally self-arrogant. Another question that people have when they consider Jesus' claim to be the way goes something like this. Well, isn't it, isn't it kind of cruel? Isn't it mean for Jesus to exclude people like that? Isn't it cruel? Isn't it false? Well, it's, it's a short answer, only if it's not true. <laughs> so imagine, um, imagine you, have a, you're, you have to cross a canyon, a very, very wide, very deep canyon, and there are two bridges so you can take the left bridge or you can take the right bridge. And the left bridge is a very old, decrepit, kind of fraying rope bridge. And you can kind of, you know, get over. But the rope is pretty threadbare. And, you know, and, the, and the right bridge is a very modern, newly built concrete and steel. And their trucks, you know, can drive over it. And now imagine somebody puts up a sign and says, the left bridge is old and busted. The right bridge is a good bridge. You need to cross using the right bridge. Is that a cruel and mean-spirited sign? Well, no, of course not, right? You, would, you wouldn't say, well, both bridges lead to the other side, would you? Because they don't. I mean, they, they do, but this bridge, you're going to get halfway across and find yourself speeding towards the canyon floor with a very sudden stop at the end. That's not the way that you want to get across. It's not hateful, If it's true, it's not hateful to say one of these bridges is not going to get you where you want to go, and one of them will. In fact, it is loving. 
What is cruel is to know that there is a bridge that doesn't work and to point people towards that bridge. If, if the new bridge really is the only way. Jesus isn't saying he's trying to make things harder for people. He's not trying to keep people out or exclude. In fact, scripture says we, God doesn't exclude us, we exclude ourselves. There's a lot of personal choice in that. You notice how Jesus finishes what he's teaching? He says, I've come that they may have life. I want everybody to have life, to live. And not just to have life, but to have life to the fullest. So when Jesus talks about being the way, about being the gate, he's not trying to rob you of life. He's offering you life. He wants to offer you more fullness than you even know how to hold inside of you. His claim that he is the gate, the way to life, is not severe or retributive. It's the most loving thing that he could tell you. It's it's as if Jesus is asking you, do you you want a full life? Do you want a full life? Is there anybody who doesn't want a full life? life. I do. Do you want a life that's full of love and full of joy and full of peace and full of patience and kindness? You get the idea? Jesus says, I'm, I'm the way to that. I'm the way. So I was chatting um, earlier, just earlier this week, I was chatting about a lot of these ideas and um, bouncing some ideas off of uh, Doran. And he pointed out that um, ancient sailors, uh, before, before GPS and before radar and, you know, ancient sailors, they navigated by the stars. And I'm sure that this is going to be an oversimplification, and I'm even hesitant to use this because, like, some of you are sailors, and so you can correct me in coffee hour, but your beef isn't with me, it's with Doran. So you can correct Doran, um, who's not here, he's sick, so he can't even defend himself. <laughs> Ancient sailors used to navigate by the stars, and and they would navigate chiefly by the North Star, and you knew what all the other stars were relative to which star is the North Star, the brightest star in the sky. But in order to navigate by the stars, you have to know which star is which. So you look for the North Star, and you do your, you know, whatever you do with your sextant and your equations, and you figure out where you are, And that's going to tell you which way you need to go relative to that star to get where you're going. You're sailing, I don't know, from Ephesus to Crete. And so you're going to look at the stars, and that's going to tell you exactly where you are and how to get where you're going. So when Jesus says, I am the door, it's kind of like him saying, I'm the North Star. And here's the thing. You can choose to navigate by a different star. You can. So imagine you start navigating by the, I don't know, what's another star? <laughs> I've, I've heard the Pleiades. I, don't, I think that's a constellation, not a star. Let's say the Pleiades. So imagine you start navigating by the Pleiades instead of the North Star. And you're treating the Pleiades as if they, it, they, they are the North Star. And then you're very surprised to find yourself a thousand miles off course in Corsica instead of Crete. Don't be surprised because the Pleiades are not the North Star. They just, they just aren't. 
And to treat them as though they were is going to land you in the wrong place. There is only one North Star. It's an exclusive claim, yes. But it's for your good. It's so that you can get where you need to go and not end up hundreds or thousands of miles off course. I am the gate, Jesus says. And listen, if you needed evidence that like, he means this for your good, listen to what he says right after this. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. That's what he wants for you. And he will come in and go out and find pasture. We're going we're gonna to marinate a little bit more in that imagery next week when we talk about Jesus as the shepherd. But you can imagine if Jesus is talking to us like we're sheep, finding pasture is a pretty good thing. You come in and go out through me and you'll find pasture. The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and to have it abundantly, to have it to the fullest, Jesus say. He's not saying this, and Caleb did such a good job emphasizing this last week. He's not saying this just so we can bicker and argue about who's right and who's wrong and so we can wag our fingers and you're nan and Anabu. It's not about any of that. Jesus says this so we can find life. And life, he says, is found in him. Now there's one really important question that's outstanding that we still have to think about and that's this. If Jesus makes such a bold claim, and it's a bold claim, let's not, let's not mince words. You gotta ask, what basis does he have? Like, how does he back this up? I said earlier, an exclusive claim isn't unloving as long as it's true. How do we, how do we even know it's true in the first place? How do we know it's true? This... Um, idea, this kind of formulation is one that I found really helpful. It doesn't come from me. It comes from a pastor named Tim Keller. And he points this out, that every other God, little g, God, every other God tells us, you will kill yourself to get me. So think about, and these are kind of more abstract ideas, but in, in kind of our modern world, most, to my knowledge, most of us aren't worshiping little carved ivory or wooden idols. Like our idols tend to be more abstract. What are the gods that we tend to put in the true God's place? Things like status. We really care about what people think about us. Things like control. We really care about controlling our environment and our circumstances and sometimes even, let's call it, the people around us. How about beauty? We'll do anything it takes to maintain some perception of beauty. I just read some articles. I don't, I'm not on TikTok, but there's a new TikTok filter that makes people like more beautiful and glamorous just with the click of a button. It's things like power. And here's the thing about each of those gods, those little G gods, is you never get enough. You never get enough of them. And the minute you get what you thought you wanted, you want more. So, so think about like status or reputation. Maybe you find this through work. And so you, you work hard and, and you say, I just, I just want to reach district manager. And you do. You worked really hard and, and that's great. And you become the district manager. Well, now you want to become the regional manager. 
So you work really, really hard to become the regional manager. And then once you become the regional manager, now you want to become the vice president. And then once you become, like it just never, you always want more. It's never enough. Think about beauty. I remember years and years and years ago, watching a, like one of those evening news, like a Dateline or something like that. And it was, um, uh, that segment was about eating disorders and people with eating disorders. And there was a woman on there who was, I mean, severely malnourished. She was anorexic and she ate an apple a day. That's all. And she, there was something in her brain that told her when she looked in the mirror that she still wasn't skinny enough. And it, and it was just you see, it's, it's never enough. Jamie and I are on the tail end of a very long, very drawn-out home renovation, and we've got some things that are new that we really we wanted, and we're really excited, and already some of that, we're like, ah, we, we kind of want something else. It's never enough, you see? In 2005, it was 18 years ago, there was a 60 Minutes feature and they were interviewing Tom Brady. I'm not from here. I'm not, I'm not a big football fan. Can I still use Tom Brady? As an, is that still a, since he, you know, betrayed Patriots or whatever? Anyway, um, 2005, an interviewer for 60 Minutes is interviewing Tom Brady. And at that time, he's won three Super Bowls. And Tom Brady asks, this is a direct quote. I just transcribed it directly the other day. He asks, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me. There's got to be more to it than this. And later in the same interview, the interviewer asks, well, which of your three rings is your favorite? And Tom Brady kind of chuckles, and he thinks for a minute, and he says, I would say the next one. The next one is best. It's never enough. It's never enough, is it? You see, that was 2005. You wonder what Tom Brady would say now, 18 years later. Was it enough, Tom? Every other God demands, you will kill yourself to get me, and it will never be enough because I will keep moving the goalpost further and further down the field, and you will keep wanting more and more and more, and you will keep killing yourself to get me. You see? Every other God says, you will kill yourself to get me. Jesus is the only God who says, I will let myself be killed to get you. No other God, whether an abstract God like control or beauty or whatever, will say that. And as far as I know, no other God even a religious God, has given his life for his people. Every other God demands his people's lives. No other God has given his life for his people. And you might say, well, people have died for other people before, and that's true. You're, you're not wrong. True enough. But no other God has ever died for his people. And no, who else? God or human, who else, after having died for someone, has been raised again to life on the third day? How can Jesus demand, should I say, exclusivity? How can Jesus say, I am the way? 
the only way? Because he is the only God who has given all of himself to make a way for us. Do you see? The question that we're really confronting ourselves with when we talk about the exclusivity of God is this. Will you follow a God who will only demand your life or will you follow a God who has given his? See, if that's the case, then all of a sudden Jesus' claims to be the way, his claims of exclusivity become far less offensive. How can he say he's the only way to life? Because he's the only God who has literally gone to hell and back for you. I am the gate for the sheep. I myself, I am the gate for the sheep. And all who ever came before me were thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. And whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it to the fullest. Pray with me if you would. Lord, sometimes you confront us with hard realities, but we lean on your grace and trust that even when you confront us with hard realities and hard claims, you didn't just hang us out to dry or out to figure it out on our own, but you became one of us and endured the hardest thing of all. so that we might be united with you and find life. So as we wrestle, and and many of us still wrestle, I still wrestle, and we have certain questions, and we have doubts, things we're not sure about, and some days we probably even wonder if if you're even real. Reassure us, even through these strong statements, that there is no bottom to the depth of your love for us. Teach us that you are love and teach us to love because you have first loved us. And ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.